Good morning, Anthem. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, it's a profound and uh, glorious thing to gather as a church, is it not? To, as we sing, as we sing these truths that stir up affections about who Jesus is and what that means to our lives, and now we get to study God's Word. So if you would, we've been in the, a series of Matthew. We started that two weeks ago, and today we're going to be in chapter 2. We get to open God's Word and see how God wants to communicate to us in this time and space here today that it has meaning, it has value. So, Matthew chapter 2. You guys there? All right. Let's read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, a star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by their way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fill, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to Galilee, 
and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we recognize it, that it has authority and can speak to us. Lord, give us the ears, awaken our hearts, awaken our minds to, to hear, to know, to discern what it is you're trying to communicate to us through this. Jesus, that we would set down the things that hinder us from responding to it, from hearing clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So kind of to recap where we've been, we've been in chapter one, which is primarily dealt with the significance and the birth of Jesus. Chapter one and two kind of are two parts that go together, they work together. And so two is kind of the hinge where we begin to move into some other directions, but we have to look um, at the context of why Matthew starts this certain way. So for today, what we're going to do, this is mainly a story narrative, but I want to give some bigger framework pieces on how we should approach this so we can more accurately understand what's being communicated here. So it'll be kind of highly informative up front, but when we begin to respond and as we begin to move through the book of Matthew, it helps to have certain framework and accurate ways to view Scripture. Otherwise, the beliefs and the, and the realities we come to of how we interpret this might be lacking. But I think we get a deeper understanding when we see these frameworks. So, first of all, some of this is repeat, but to encourage you guys and remind you that this was a, the writer of this gospel was a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. Matthew Levi, and he's an individual, meaning this, that this person who writes this has individual perspectives and a purpose for writing this account. Sometimes we read it like this is just very informative, and we take the person out and the character and the personality of the person who might write this and why they would choose to write this way. So context is really important. Who was this written to? What's the primary audience? What are the main points he's kind of bring to this surface? Now, Gospels in general, so the Gospels would be the books in our Bible that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How should we approach them as being Gospels, as literature, as, as a genre? Because in, in, in this book here, we have many different styles of literature. We have wisdom, we have poetry, we have the Gospels, we have history and narrative, we have prophecy. So certain books kind of use different literary devices to communicate certain ways. And it's important for us to understand that. So when we read this, they're not just a straight chronological history account. That's kind of not the purpose of this. Um, or historical narrative. Uh, but rather, the writer will use these events to say, here's the events that happened. This is what they mean. So the main point is not necessarily about the event itself or what the writer's describing, but rather what the writer's communicating through them. And each of the Gospels has a very distinct feature written by the people. So they're communicating something specific, not just facts, but they're teaching us and helping us understand something from a certain point of view, something specific. So Matthew, what is he specifically trying to communicate to us? Some of this is review. Matthew is Jewish, and it is said to be the most Jewish-related of the Gospels. 
the most Jewish in style. It's very heavily linked to prophecies, very heavily linked to the Old Testament. Many prophecies about the Messiah. And he doesn't go into great detail to explain these events and histories in the Jewish cultures or Jewish customs. He just kind of passes through them like we have assumed knowledge of this. And that's important to understand that. It would be like if I wrote you guys a letter, wrote something to you, talking about an event that happened here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I begin to talk about Tubbs Hill. I don't have to go into great detail because you guys know and understand this area. When I begin to speak of snow falling in September, it's assumed we live in this area, it happens, correct? But if I begin to write to you about something that happened maybe in Beijing, China, if I begin to list places and cultures and customs, it'd be so foreign that I would probably need to begin to explain and unpack some of these things. So when we look at our audience, it's viewed through a Jewish lens. Now, that can kind of be confusing to us. We think, okay, well, we're not Jewish. Is it important to us? I don't understand that. I, I, I don't understand the customs or cultures, but why should that have weight? And that shouldn't discourage you or say, hey, this isn't that important. It's just kind of speaking to this group of people, but rather it helps us un understand and interpret this because that is the lens by which we view these things. We have to filter it through. Why would he say these things? Why would he bring up these events? Why would he point to these prophecies and use these words? And it's important to remember that when we read the Bible, it's not written directly to us. It's not this letter that's just this, our own personal letter, but rather it's for us. Is it important? Yes, but we understand it's written to a specific audience. So the birth and significance of Jesus, that's primarily what chapter 1 and 2 deal with. And Matthew starts with a genealogy and, and how he uses it. So if we use that framework which I laid out why did he use a genealogy the way he did? What is he trying to communicate through these facts? We see that he kind of has a diversion and adds women and people of historical significance that just rightly wouldn't fit within a standard genealogy. But what he's communicating is the credentials of who this person Jesus is. Why does it matter? The point is he's showing Jesus as the Messiah. He's painting Jesus as a king. So we get the idea of king, but what about Messiah? Do we understand that? Maybe it's just a term we throw around, but have you ever given the significance of what Messiah means? Maybe we just throw it around as a Christianese terms. We do that quite often where we say words, but we don't really understand the depth of what they mean or accurately. But Messiah is this. Let's give a brief overview. The word means anointed one or the chosen one to be set apart or god ordained for a purpose it carries that meaning in greek the translation for messiah is christ so when we say jesus christ what we're actually saying is jesus the messiah so every time you read here when it says you are the christ the son of the living god we're actually interchanging that with a greek word that means messiah so the idea of Messiah is kind of heavily steeped in the Jewish culture with this thread of redemption. So remember that. When we're speaking of Messiah, we have to carry this idea of redemption. And the story happens, goes way back into Genesis, where we first kind of get a glimpse or a prophecy of what Messiah is. 
after the fall, after man chose and rebelled against God because they wanted to rule and control things their own way, sin entered the world. And when God begins to hand out the judgments to mankind as a result of their rebellion, as a result of their sin, there's this little quib of a of a prophecy that says through the woman's seed would arise somebody who would defeat the snake. And this is God talking to the snake, and he would destroy the snake. And we get this glimpse that someday there's going to come somebody from human descent that, that would bruise and crush and destroy this evil that had entered the world. Later on, we, we have somebody show up on the scene named Abraham, and God appears to Abraham and says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to make you a great nation that'll what? Bless all nations. We see this prophecy furthered. That God would take and make him a people set apart from everyone else. And God would show his glory through that. And by this nation, it would begin to bless the whole world. Now, Abraham has sons. Isaac. And then we have Jacob. Who Jacob wasn't the rightful heir. He was the younger of two brothers, which was elevated to the place of authority. And that's how the lineage carries through Abraham. And he has 12 sons, which we would know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his sons was Judah. And to Judah, he makes this promise. God makes a promise that says, hey, through the tribe of Judah, I'm going to set up a king that would one day rule. Now, up until this time in Israel, there, there were no kings. But one day there's going to come somebody from your people, the tribe of Judah, that's how we'd say it, that would, that would be a king. And so the first king that we have that comes from the tribe of Judah is who? Does anyone know? David. Yeah. Yeah. So we have David. He'd be the first king from the tribe of Judah. But David wasn't this promised one because he had a big problem with sin, right? He showed up and he evidently had some big issues. He wasn't the one to set his people free, but God makes a covenant and a promise to this person, David, and says, through your line, there's going to come one day where there's going to be a king that sits on a throne forever that will never end. So this promise is made to David. And after David, we have the prophets who begin to speak of this person, this Messiah, who would come, who would break the power of sin and death, who would rule and reign and set things right eventually. So that, in a short synopsis, is what Messiah was. So this, this king, this person who would come and redeem and fix the problem of sin. And Matthew shows us through the prophets that Jesus actually fulfilled this. He starts with the genealogy saying, look, he fulfills everything. From, from Abraham to David, this person has the credentials to be this king. From the prophets, Jesus actually fulfilled this that he's the one who would bless all nations. So with the king, is a, the king and the kingdom is a big thread that runs through Matthew. We'll see him many times saying that the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is like this. Um, and he'd be a king that fulfills prophecy, a promise fulfiller. And when we read chapter 2 and a little bit into 1, we see this pattern. Matthew lays out a little short story. And then says, this was done to fulfill this. Did we catch that? When we move back through it, we'll, we'll highlight that. That here's what happened, and this happened to fulfill this, re to fulfill this for this reason. It was prophecy. 
and Jesus fulfilled this. And it was given two kinds of prophecy. Um, over ten times we have a direct fulfillment of prophecy in this book, meaning specifically speaking about Messiah, Jesus actually fulfilled these things. And there's kind of an indirect form. And maybe to understand prophecy, it really helps to understand how the Jews understood prophecy. That it is kind of a pattern and a, and a type. Not directly. We, we kind of view it in a sense of, in the future this will happen. Thus saith the Lord that one day this will happen. But they understood it, how God worked in the past, he will work in the future. So we could take stories of Israel being in Egypt and, and moving into the promised land, and we can overlay that and say, this is how God worked in the past, this is how he works in the future. So kind of an indirect form where Jesus becomes a typology of this prop prophecy. Sometimes when we begin to read these, you would interpret it and be like, I don't understand this. This doesn't seem like direct prophecy. Some of them are very clear from our advantage point in history. So in chapter 2, we get to this story. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem, Judah, for so it is written. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who were shepherd my people Israel. So we have these people show up on the scene. Um, the wise men, the magi, we're all familiar probably with the Christmas story. And probably even we have some things attached that are just not true because of tradition that we have here in America. But most likely there were not just three of them. As historically you see set up on nativity scenes that there's three wise men. But you have this people Magi meaning wise, that come from the east. So, so who are these people? This is kind of interesting. They just show up to Jerusalem seeking a king. Now, from the east, chances are good that these people were from the Babylonian exile. Israel was a people who were once exiled into Babylon, so they would have taken God's word and moved to Babylon probably left some of that. Some of the people even stayed in Babylon, intermarried, became part of the culture, but they still had these ancient texts. We have Daniel, who served with the government and was a high-up leader, and he wrote some of these prophecies these people would have had and understood. Um, also noting that kind of culturally around this area in this time, um, the Roman, historia, Roman historian Suntonius and others kind of tell us that among the East and among that area were a general expectation of a ruler that would come out of Judea. Maybe not directly from the, from the text here or accurately, but that was just a common understood knowledge that, yeah, there's a, there's a folklore or a prophecy that exists that there would be a ruler who comes out of Judea. So we have these people, and they show up in Jerusalem guided by a star. 
We've heard that, the Christmas star. And what do they come to do? They show up in Jerusalem. They, they, we've come to worship the king of the Jews, the one who was born king of the Jews. For we saw his star, and it arose, and have come to worship him. Logically, if you're coming from the east, you probably go to the capital where the current king reigns, right? We're here to worship a king. It, it would make sense to show up there. And so they come expecting answers, and yet they find confusion. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, this is pretty significant. Because when they see this stein, they travel from a far off co country. It's not like they just drove down the street to be like, oh, we just saw this star in this, and sign in the sky, and we decided to respond to it. But this would have been great effort to have to travel to bring these gifts. So they respond. They're recognizing this as something significant. And, and there's even more significance when they say that there's a baby born that is born king. Most royalty, when they're born, even if they are in line for king, they're not born kings, are they? They're born princes. So even in, in how they term this Messiah, this promised one, there's significance that we can pull out from there. And also, why would you travel from Babylon to this completely in, insignificant place, Israel? Even Jerusalem. This isn't a place or a hot spot of culture or even a, rule, a, a spot that ruled the world. But yet this is a people who are occupied by Rome. Nothing really significant stands out about them. But they come seeking the one who is born king of the Jews. Israel was absolutely despised by other nations. And they expected the leaders to know what was going on. But this wasn't the case. And it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So, so who is this guy Herod? Um, Herod the Great. This would be Herod the Great. It's important to note that Herod is a ruling dynasty name. So when you read scripture and you see Herod, 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 and it says that he died here, but apparently in other gospels there's another Herod that exists. This is the ruling dynasty that he had sons that would have taken on this name. Um, it had been Herod the Great, his son Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. So that's important to know that. But Herod was somebody who was set up by Rome to rule. He was an actually given the title of king by Rome. And he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. So many of the Jews viewed this guy as a usurper of the throne. And his main directive was to kind of carry out the wishes of Rome while kind of simultaneously maintaining the peace of the local people. And they call him Herod the Great because he did a great many building works. He did prosper the area. But he, he rebuilt the temple. He's, he was known as a master builder. But he also loved power. Um, and he fiercely protected this power, his throne, his kingdom. Um, and later in his life, he probably suffered from some type of mental illness um, where he'd go in, into these fits and these rages. It, it manifested in paranoia. 
and he assassinated many of his own family, many of his own people who were close to him um, because he dis- suspected disloyalty from them. Augustus, the Roman emperor, even said this. It's recorded um, by writers. It, Augustine said this. It is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So kind of pay, painting the picture. This guy's a, r- a real piece of work. He's not a guy you probably want to be too close to. So when we read the story, why, why was all Jerusalem troubled? Why was Herod troubled? Well, if we follow the lineage and the fact that these people show up to worship a king, there's a potential that there's a legitimate king, a rightful heir of the throne that has been born. It would lay claim on Herod's position, and that would be a problem for him. And, and for Israel, why, why would Israel be troubled? Is it, is it because possibly this whole caravan from the east shows up expecting to worship a king and they completely miss it? Is it the fact that maybe Herod's just going to go off the handle at any moment and take it out on the people? Possibly. It doesn't really clearly say. Possibly both. And also, possibility of the corrupt religious system in the days of the people who were appointed to be high priests. That could have been part of it. This would really disrupt them. The announcement of a a Messiah, the announcement of one who is to reign. So Herod gathers these chief priests and he inquires of them. Where was the Messiah to be born? And they tell him. And in Bethlehem of Judea, Herod didn't know. He wasn't a Jew. So he had to gather the religious people, the, the chief priest, the scribes, the people who knew the law, and they pretty clearly probably came up with it. They understood the scriptures, but we know they didn't seem to really react to anything. Not sure why, but it seems kind of a passive action towards this. Yeah, there's the, he's to be born, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, Judah, and there's these people showing up to worship him. Yeah, we've had Messiahs before, but things are just kind of continue on. Will God fulfill his promises? I don't know. We have this happen. And in verse 7, it says this, And Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him... Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So Herod secretly pulls these people aside, these magi, these wise men. You notice the word secretly. He didn't do this openly. He's trying to hide that, and he tries to fool them by saying, I too want to worship this king. Would you please go find out where he is and bring me word because I want to go worship him. So as they leave, another supernatural phenomenon takes place. They saw the original sign in the star, but apparently it had disappeared. But after speaking to Herod, it reappears again. And it leads them to the place where they find the child, where they find Jesus. Now, 
Scripture doesn't give any indication what the star was, does it? We can speculate, but it's kind of this phenomena, an inexplicable thing, maybe miraculous. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country in a different way. So they show up, make their way to Bethlehem, and somehow the star leads them to Jesus. And what is their response? They worship, they fall, and give him homage as due and as fit for a king of somebody of royalty, where they kind of understand the profundity and the weight and the gravity of what's happening here, and they bring him gifts. Now, the writer highlights a few of them, and many commentators think that they have spiritual significance, that, that when they brought gold, it is representative of king affirming that. When they, when they brought frankincense, that's kind of the, it affirms the priestly duty and the priestly position that this person would fulfill. And myrrh representing the death of Jesus. And being warned in a dream, if we, we pay attention, God continuously speaks to people through dreams in this passage, in chapter 2. Tells them, do not go back. Don't return to Herod. And so they go another way. Now, when they had departed, in verse 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, which was to fill this. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I have called my son. So Joseph has another dream spoken to by God, and he immediately responds. You need to get out of here. Herod's going to seek the child's life, and immediately he gets up and takes action to this. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice in Ramah, weeping for the loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they, because they are no more. So taking no chances, Herod, recognizing that he's been tricked, goes to great measures and massacres children two years and under. A horrific thing. Could, could you even imagine living in Bethlehem as this response? Like as Herod, if he said to the wise men, like, well, you had to do it the hard way. 
I'd have been content just killing his family and everybody that was related or friends with this person, but let's do it the hard way. We'll just kill everyone around that meets the criteria of this age range from which Messiah should have showed up. It's kind of hard to understand why that exists, but when we see this, this story, this message, and these, these heavy things that happen in history revolving this person of the Messiah, this announcement of Jesus, it makes you wonder. And it says this, this was fulfilled, this happened to fulfill this prophecy. And this is one of the indirect prophecies where it's a type, typology where these people from Jeremiah moving in to captivity begin to say this. And so these are one of these indirect prophecies that Jesus checked this box. This is a prophecy fulfilled. Even the death of these children. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph has another dream, and quick obedience, he, he moves from Egypt, comes back to Israel, and on his way, probably going back to Bethlehem where he had been living, here's something, some disturbing news that Archelaus, Herod's son, is reigning in his place. And it's later confirmed that God affirms that, yes, don't go back there. That would be unwise, that'd be unsafe, but it's interesting that his first initial response was kind of a wise one. And we know from history that Archelaus, the apple didn't really far, fall far from the tree. He walked in the footsteps of his father, maybe not to the same level, but this was not a good person. He was not actually a king. He was only a ruler of the area. He's never appointed king by Rome. But because of misconduct and because the people despised him so much, complained to the Roman emperor, and they had, and Rome had to have him removed to avoid an uprising from the Jewish people. But we see God's promise. No, move to this area called Nazareth. And the idea, remember, that's where Joseph and Mary are originally from. It'd probably be hard to move back to this place, Nazareth. We're not going to go all the way to Bethlehem. We're going to hang out in this area. Now, Nazareth was this little blip on the map, little truck stop of a town. Nothing there. It was greatly made fun of. And to have to go back to where your people knew you, just imagine the controversy surrounding just the, the pregnancy and birth that Mary carried. Nobody believed that it was done and conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's great controversy. To kind of highlight what Nazareth was like, Spurgeon in his commentary says this. There's always some city or village 
or another whose inhabitants seem to be the butt of every joke and the object of scorn. The people of such places are thought to be low, uncultured, not very smart. That's the kind of place Nazareth was. So the kind of frame, that, that's what Jesus went to. That's where Jesus grew up. So he'd be called Jesus of Nazareth. That wasn't a compliment. But we see the humility of this, of this king who comes in a kingdom, who has a lineage, who has the pedigree. But the way he goes about everything, he's born in very humble beginnings. He lived in a town that nobody wanted to be at. Kind of the upside down kingdom. And it says he even did this to fulfill a prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, not to be confused with the Nazarite vow, but probably more accurately that he was from the place of Nazareth. There was a thing called a Nazarite vow where people, Samson would have been one of those where they don't, they take vows and they don't drink wine, they don't cut their hair. This is not what it's speaking of. Um, And the prophecy is kind of a vague one, but it's kind of associated with this idea of being despised or the Messiah is a branch, very similar to how Nazareth would be spoken of and the, and the words are very close to each other. And so that's what's being highlighted here, that not that he was a Nazarene as far as a vow, but that he was from this area. And so when we look at this, did we not see the little segments of, the, of what I laid out earlier? This happened and this was to fill this. Then this happened and this was to fill this. We're painting Jesus as the Messiah, as this king. But when we look at this whole story, we have to recognize and say, something profound is happening here. With the announcement of Messiah, when, when heaven invades earth, there's a great stir amongst the ruling powers, amongst the religious people. And we see this time and time again as we move through the Gospels. But this is really interesting. Jesus hasn't spoken a word. There's no recorded words. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't done a teaching, but yet there's great controversy surrounding this figure where you'd have to stop and think, something is happening here that demands that we stop and think, why? What what is going on? Even in our lives, when you're born... Your mother may have told you you're special, but I don't believe anybody came from the Far East to worship you and bring you gold or gifts, right? Except for Jerry. <laughs> that, that didn't happen. Nobody showed up and killed all the children in the area just to, be, to make sure that you didn't live. These big events where we have to say something beyond just the here and now and the physical, but almost something supernatural is taking place. And when when we look at this, we have to say, God, what are you communicating through this? Are you the Messiah? What does that mean? And, And when we want to study this, when we start out, Chris, Pastor Chris has been saying that we want to not just read this for information, but we need to be able to respond to that. Now, I understand that this is mainly a a, a narrative, and it's giving us frameworks, and it's showing us who the king is, who who the Messiah is, that we'll kind of move on for here, but how do we put feet to this? What what should be our response? Information is good, but how how do we engage? Um, And to be fair with that, 
I've come up kind of with three things, maybe challenges that we can take from this story. Um, to the believer, looking at this, recognizing the weight, recognizing the prophecies fulfilled, and, and we're getting a glimpse of what Jesus came to do. Does this strengthen your faith? Does this well up worship? Does it well up praise and thanksgiving? Does adoration come from this? Does this give you confidence that God really orchestrated these events? And I think it should, but sometimes we're just like, yep, it's a Christmas story. Three months early. But, th- but that's not how we should respond to this. And so I would challenge you this week, meditate on this. Meaning this, take these ideas of what you've learned Take two minutes and roll through them. What does this mean to you today? How should this stir up your affections? What does this mean for you? That there is a Messiah. That there is this Redeemer, this idea of someone who came to save you. Someone who came to break the power of sin and death. That's the second question. The second thing would be to ask yourself this question. Who is the Messiah to you? What does it really mean in your life? And, and maybe, ultimately we're asking the question, is who is God? This, this redeemer, this king who is promised, who fulfills these promises, what does this mean to you? Maybe ask yourself, where did you get the idea of who God is? Because sometimes we approach and we have our own personal view of God that might be incorrect, but it needs to be shaped by God's word. This is an important question. What's changed because of your belief in this Messiah? Has it given us confidence that a God who promises something will actually carry it out? What does that mean? See, we can affirm all the right doctrines and all the right teachings, but we're still left with God, search me, know me, try my thoughts. You have to look within. I can say the right things and even say, I understand these beliefs and let me explain this to you. But has this knowledge actually impacted the way you you live? It has to. There was no distinction between belief and this whole idea that it's an intellectual thing only, not coupled with action, but rather faith and knowledge work together to manifest itself in belief that leads to action. You know, are we just still the same? Are we the same as we were? I'm a Christian, but not much has changed. I hang out at a cool club on Sundays. That, that, shouldn't, be, that shouldn't be the statement here. But for an unbeliever, it also carries a whole different meaning. It's, it's hope. It's grace. It's forgiveness. This idea of God with us, that God has come to freely offer us forgiveness by by trusting in this Messiah, by trusting in this work of this promised one, this king. And and also, as we we read these stories, there's there's one more thing. Kind of when you take the macro and the micro. So on on a macro scale, the bigger picture, we, we see that the kingdom of God comes. And and we see how it disrupts everything. It disrupts it, Herod's kingdom. 
it, 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 we have these three people groups. We have the religious leaders. How did that impact them? How did it impact the Magi? So these truths that when the kingdom of God showed up, there's this kind of conflict because of what it stands for and what humanity wants to control. And when we look at these things, we have to recognize what happens on the bigger picture, the macro, also happens on the micro level, that beyond the personal level. When the kingdom of God shows up, it's going to challenge the thrones you have set up in your heart and your life. Where it says, I have demands on your life in certain areas, and you have the right to hold those. What are the three responses? We see Herod, who responded in what? Hostility. Nope, going to defend what's mine. I'll go to extreme measures. Or we have the religious people who, when they, when they responded, it's kind of that indifference. Yep, Messiah's going to be born. Probably doesn't impact my life in any way. Or the third type, when the kingdom of God shows up in your life and the weight that carries, or do we respond like the magi in, in worship? So from that idea, remember what happens on the big picture, big scale, also happens personally in our lives too. So where can you submit to God's rule? Where do you need to submit? Where do you need to repent? See, that's the good thing. We're, we're covered by that. We all probably have things in our life that we kind of hold back as ours and we want to maintain control. But when we realize that the gospel and Jesus kind of invade every part of our life, it is not this additive to make us feel better. Where can we learn to trust more? And what can we do to take action to, to outpour a life in worship? And thanks and adoration. So when we see this, we recognize just the profoundness of God and what he's done. And we can trust and we can rest in that. I encourage you guys, meditate on this. It's, it's hard. It's easy to be like, yep, I'll do that. You'll do it on the way to the car, and maybe this thought will never cross your mind again, what we talk about here. But you will never grow. You'll remain in the same spot you were today. But that's not what we want to do. We want to raise the bar as Anthem Church. We want to say, hey, that is not being a follower of Jesus. We need to actively pursue, do what he says, check our hearts, look inwards. Say, search me, know me, God. What am I holding back? What am I doing well in that I need to... To, to further walk in. And that's our prayer and desire as, as staff and as a people and for this church. It's not just people up here intellectually unpacking information so that you feel good about yourselves. But as followers of Jesus, we need to couple that with an action, with a heart that desperately wants to seek to know God. So would you stand with me? Um, Austin, you want to come up? And I'd like to pray for you guys um, that, that these facts, that, the, that these stories would become more than just that. More than just a precursor to Christmas season coming up. But that it would have a weight in your life and it begin to manifest in the way you think, the way you live, the words that come from your mouth. So God, this morning, we, we thank you for your word. We can trust in it. God, we can grow in our confidence seeing that you have intricately woven this idea of a thread of redemption from the, from the very beginning. 
Jesus, our hope, our trust is in you. Help us to grow in that understanding. Help us to grow in our faith. God, help us to take what measures need to to be taken to follow you rightly, the hindrances, the things that just are of little worth. God, that we'd value the things that you value. Jesus, help us to be people who are disciplined to even think through your word. And through that, when our minds are focused on what you did, you will stir up affections toward them and give us deeper and richer understanding.